Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon covering A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 117. Davos 4 in A Dance with Dragons. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Yes, it is not only the final Davos episode, Davos chapter in a Davoda. It is the final Davos chapter that we have at all. No, no wins chapters, no nothing. Yes, we come to you on the eve of a new dawn, a new day, a new POV. And I know that you're dying to hear who the new POV is. And we will tell you that in just a minute. After a brief break from brief our something break. sponsors, I don't actually remember what uh, the what the lines La Croix? are. Lacroix, yeah, Lacroix, yes, sponsor us. Uh, no, we do have a new POV after this, and we'll tell you that. But first, we are going to talk about what our Patreon episode will be this month, right, Eliana? Yes. So, as all of you know, we do cover two series we cover a song of ice and fire and the his dark material series though currently we are covering the companion trilogy of the book of dust companion to his dark materials and every last week of the month we do a la belle sauvage episode and so every other month we rotate between a song of ice and fire and a his dark materials episode and this month will be a his dark materials verse episode we are going to be covering <laughs> Serpentine, the novella. I am excited because you have not read it, and I have. And I have finished The Secret Commonwealth. I read that before Serpentine. Serpentine came out more recently. And you had not finished it yet, but you're reading it, so you'll probably make some connections, I'm guessing. But I'm excited to hear your perspective as like a blank virgin mind on this one, Eliana. Yeah, I'm really pure, you know. Like the fallen snow. John Snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and absolutely, you and I were discussing it. It'll be interesting to have that flip on perspectives. And I am making my way through the Secret Commonwealth. I made some progress and I realized maybe it's not me. Just saying. Hmm. And, you know, we are going to be yeah covering Serpentine. And I know that the television series where you can all listen to our coverage of the HBO BBC His Dark Materials television series over on our Podbean and other places our podcast is hosted. Serpentine was covered just a little bit. So some elements of it made it into the show. I was impressed by that and I kind of see the marketing there as somebody who's lived through some uh, fire and bloods in season eight so to speak. I could see the marketing of getting that out right beforehand and getting that out before the show takes off. So I think it was really well done with the season. If you haven't read His Dark Materials, definitely check it out. I I was new to that. I too was a virgin once, Eliana, to the series. Uh, But you got me in there. Oh my god. Anyways, I am done talking about my threesome with you and the His Dark Materials books, and I know the cat is out of the bag on that, so look forward to that Patreon episode over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, and you know, if you are in the Thunder tier and above over at our Patreon, you have access to our private Discord server. It is kind of neat. It's fun. We do some fun stuff there. Sometimes we play some Jackbox games. We talk about food a lot. 
We shitpost a lot. There is a memes and shitposting channel. Uh, people play video games. You know, we stream video games. We have a good time. So come hang out. That's the $10 and above tier over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And all of those who have access to the Discord also get access monthly to a fun brunch slash happy hour event where we hang out. Sometimes we do some fun little mini presentation slideshows on a topic. Uh, potluck presentation style or sometimes we play jackbox games now so we're just hang out come on fish around see what people are saying and yeah fish around indeed yeah see where the river takes you of life well the river has flown us to this point eliana we are at a crossroads so to speak not an inn just a crossroads and I think it's time, right? It's time right now to reveal this POV. It is. It is. You know, the people on the Discord did get it ahead of time, and, and so did our patrons, but so. We've got to quit playing with our food, you know. We do, we do. And I think uh, quite a few people have actually guessed this POV. I guess we weren't that subtle at the beginning, and I actually tried to <laughs> throw people off. And I think I was mildly successful in throwing people off, but also I think that the analysis made sense, but... Yeah, I think there's a flow to how we're doing this. It turns out we may have mentioned this before, but we are picking these purposefully. There are parallels between the POVs as we go. Sometimes they might be not as deep, right? They might not be as deep as we think, uh, but sometimes they are deep. There's a lot of great strong themes, and I think weaving them throughout the POVs is very fun. And I'll admit, I, I was probably a little too excited and probably made too many strong pair. It was probably me. I'm going to take accountability. I don't know that it was you. It, ah, I don't know. We did a lot of comparisons between these chapters and these characters, especially in A Clash of Kings, because both of these characters are very central, right, to A Clash of Kings. Davos gives us an entryway into one king's campaign, right, for the Iron mm -hmm. Throne, and it's the first introduction and perspective we really get in on that. And this character also gives us another perspective on a king in A Clash of Kings and and is, I think, very integral to holding that book together. And I'm honestly just sick of watching you struggle upstream, Eliana. So I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag because, yes, it is Catelyn Tully is the next POV. Catelyn Stark? Nay, Tully. Yeah. Nay. <laughs> Nay. <laughs> no, sorry. This is not the horse episode. <laughs> what sound do fish make? All right, Guppy, blop, blop. I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm running out of nautical puns. I'm sorry. This is, this is bad. There's been well, a lot I of mean, firing like, and hiring. There's a lot of there, turnover there in the last few minutes. Absolutely. And you know what? I think it's fine. You know, we are still going to, we have a bit of a way to scale in this chapter. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <sighs> Listen, the parallels between Davos and Kat are there, right? They're, they're pretty strong. They, they're there like for you a said. lot of characters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're a strong lens, though, into a king's campaign during the War of the Five Kings. And let's, let's face it, dead kids subscribe to the social system and gets literally burnt, right? Seven gods. Uh, I don't know what you want from me. I think this is going to be great. A lot of them have grief and guilt toward their familial situations and the things they'd done in the past to get into their social standing or maintain. Even structurally, they, they play, I think, a really important role 
in some of the books and holding those together and giving us perspectives on how the world comes together in those politics, right? Both of them end up playing as envoys and even though Cat's not the hand, in some ways ends up taking on some of that role. But we are going to obviously dig into that more in about two weeks, right? We are not going mm -hmm. to be starting Catelyn's chapters until March because, again, next week we are going to be doing a La Belle Sauvage episode to give you a little bit of a buffer between Davos saying goodbye to our dear Davos. And I'm, I am really sad to be ending Davos's POV and before we say hello to Cat, And we actually did not plan for the timing to happen like this. This was very fortunate for us. Yeah. Sometimes these POVs, if you may notice, John... <laughs> Uh, take a lot longer than what we predict. I mean, this one is probably going to be a late autumn, end of the year. We're going to be on Catalan this year. Okay, we're going to have a year of Catalan, which is awesome. Perhaps, mayhaps, unfortunately, by the end of the year, we'll be killing Cat and we'll be rushing into our next POV. And bringing her back. We are going to, you know, bring bring Cat to life, wake her up inside. Wake me up. Can't wake up. You know, we could do a very special episode where we bring her back. That that could be something interesting. That's something to hold on to your hat right there, Eliana. Good thought. Uh, I'm excited for Catalan, but yes, our send-off for Davos this week. I I'm also excited for this is the chapter, right? When you think Davos chapters, this is this is the king of all chapters. This is king shit. This is Yeah. I mean it's the the North remembers. Or hand of the king shit. Yeah. Yeah, um, because the hand does take the shit, uh, wipes the <laughs> shit. Uh, I'm not really ready to say goodbye. I think it's been an awesome ride doing Davos in this in this deep dive and really getting to know Davos and his character and his arc beyond just... And of course we have to examine him next to Stannis, but beyond just being a lens into him. He's not just some sort of extension of Stannis and not some sort of limb, not just a hand. He's his own man, and I think he's come into his own, and this chapter kind of gives us one more confrontation that Davos has to prove himself at. Yep. Well, before we dive right into the Stormlord's hand, let's go through a little storm of our own. We have, of course, our lightning round. Yeah, our lightning round has been altered a bit to take out the Danny and Quentin chapters. We'll visit with them later. Don't worry. But first, in Reek 2, Theon presents Ramsay's terms to the remaining Ironborn at Moat Kaelin. John 5, Stannis' host has departed Castle Black, and a riot almost breaks out when John and company deliver rations. Tyrion 6, Tyrion dreams of the Shrouded Lord and his Lord Father, who become one in the same. After counseling young Griff over Savas, he heads into Salhoris, where he's captured by Jorah Mormont. Boo! Boo. <laughs> the Lost Lord. The Griffs continue on to Volontaries without Tyrion. Aegon obtains the loyalty of the Golden Company. The Wayward Bride. Asha Greyjoy is wed and bed, but not by the same man. A surprise attack on Deepwood Mott keeps her busy. Tyrion 7. Sold into slavery, Tyrion and crew heed a warning from the widow of the waterfront for Daenerys. Tell her we are waiting. Tell her to come soon. John 6. John receives word of Arya's fate. Melisandre offers him her power to save Arya. And that brings us to the ultimate Davos chapter so far in Aswath. The curtain has been drawn and the truth is revealed. 
Davos is asked to travel to an icy isle to bring home a stark heir. Something is off in the wolf's den. Davos can tell through the sound of voices near the door. His breakfast hasn't come, and that makes him anxious. Same. You're right. <laughs> Every day had been the same here, so change usually means bad. This may be the day I die, he thinks. Sir Garth, the jailer, may be sharpening his sword, Lady Lou, even now. Wyman's last words were to take this smuggler to lose a head and hands, and the words were repeated daily to him by Garth, who called Davos dead man. Garth speaks fondly of torturing the dead man, whether with a heated rod of cold black iron or gutting him with Lady Lou. He fantasizes about both of them all the same. Garth is kind of an interesting character. He's very, very strange and weird. I, we're probably never going to see him again. But he, in many ways, kind of feels like a Frankenstein of a couple of different characters. Like, he reminds me of a couple of the jailers that we see throughout the series. Uh, but also the way that he talks about his axe and Davos noting how large the axe is. He's like, that's the biggest axe I've ever seen. Uh, reminds me a little bit of Arya Hota, who thinks of his axe as his wife, and that is kind of the language that Garth uses to talk about his weapons. He anthropomorphizes them, uh, kind of like Arya does, but also the way that he names his weapons and the really, I think, sexual language around it reminds me a little bit of Dario. That's that's a good thought. Uh, it, I like that his name is Garth, right? It kind of has that southern name. Oh, yeah. Since, you know, the Manderleys are immigrants 1,000 years, and... <laughs> well, yeah, dude, when, every... when do you fucking like get like god when's when am i gonna be <laughs> eliana <Christ>. an immigrant <laughs> i'm sorry god damn <sighs> but the, the name right like he's still out there he's like i'm different i have a southern name you know harken back to the old manderly days i belong here but no there is something about the other jailers that is a little bit here with Garth, right? As far as like the obsession with murder, you know, like murdering your victims. And something that I noticed, though, is the opposite of, for example, Mord in the Eerie. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a little bit kind of reminiscent of Mord and makes me think of Tyrion's time. But Tyrion's also a little asshole when he's there, which he should be. I mean, it's a scary situation, but... It was. Mord's behavior mm. is more scavenger-like. It's obvious that Garth is treated better here by the Manderleys. The Manderleys treat their jailers better. And when we get the backstory in a bit for Sir Bartimus, we'll see that as well. There's also something here that reminds me of Melisandre in A Storm of Swords. Blow the candle, dead man, Garth says. And it reminds me of the conversation about the torch when Davos says, I need the torch. His hands open and closed. I will not beg her. I will not. I did not. <laughs> I did not. I did not hit her. I did not. I will not beg her. I will not. I know we did. I know we did that when that chapter happened, but it's still relevant. It okay. Is. <laughs> Melisandre says, I am like this torch, Sir Davos. We are both instruments of relore. We were made for a single purpose, to keep the darkness at bay. Do you believe that? I think that Davos in A Storm of Swords would have been much, much more worried with no no candle, right? Like blowing the candle out. He would, he would have been worse off a book ago. But now he doesn't beg. He doesn't quiver. He just waits. He does. He does. And I think that's what's great, right? We see a lot of, I think, dynamism in Davos's character and the way that he grows and changes. 
and some of the things that are integral, right, that stay the same in his story. This idea of dying, right, he's called a dead man, and obviously that's significant, and I think you all know why, and we'll talk about it more in depth in a bit, but, you know, his story intersects a lot with seafaring, right, as a smuggler, ships and stuff, and the Wex comes into this chapter, and again, Davos thinks he's gonna die, and there's part of me that feels like there's an element of the whole what is dead may never die thing, uh, sort of coming up as a theme or, or something in Davos's chapter, like, obviously he's gonna die one day because all mortals do that, eventually, you know, everyone you know someday will die. Um, but instead of saying all your <laughs> goodbyes, we wait until the sixth book. And he's probably not going to die within this story, but Davos has already died anyway, right? We talked about it at the start of A Dance with Dragons and the journey Davos has been on. He's drowned and been reborn at the Blackwater very much uh, in a way that's reminiscent of the religious practices of the Ironborn faith. So it's really interesting for this to be happening to Davos again, for him to be a dead man and Kind of curious how his story's going to play out this time, because there's a lot of reprising elements of Davos' story here, right? It's very mm -hmm. cyclical, again, that death and rebirth, but also here how he's once again imprisoned, as you were calling out of the last time he was. Yeah, everybody thinks that he's going to open up in the Winds of Winter in Unicorn Jail with uh, the Skagosi guarding him, and I Yo, kind of be feel- sick. It would be cool. Charlie the Unicorn Jail. Oh my god. I also kind of wonder if maybe- it won't be that, which we'll get into today as well. So we'll see. Maybe maybe George will break the cycle, the wheel, so to speak. He's trying to break the wheel. Candy Mountain, Charlie. Davos had resolved he was not going to plead for mercy, that he would die a night, asking only that they take his head before his hands. He rises and paces. His cell is large and pretty comfortable. Probably was once a lord's chamber. It's three times the size of his captain's cabin on Black Betha, which I will give it as an aside. Uh, Black Betha is spelled as Black Bessa here. Oh. George, we missed one. Sending it in. We found oh. one, ladies. Fascinating. <sighs> Davos rises and paces his cell. It's very large and three times the size of the captain's cabin on Black Betha. Larger than the Valyrian's cabin as well. It's huge. Its only window is bricked in, but its hearth is big and it has a privy in the corner as well. The few discomforts are mild. Mildewy sleeping pallet, warped floor planks. Uh, that's on the mildewy sleeping pallet. Everything would smell like it. Uh, the comforts outweigh that though, right? Instead of the usual dungeon food, he gets fresh fish, warm bread, spiced mutton, turnips, carrots, crabs, Garth, his jailer, is not happy about this, of course. He has furs to stay warm with, wood for his fire, clothing, a candle. He requests paper and a quill and ink set. Terry, one of the guys, brings him. Terry brings them to him the next day. He asks for a book, and the boy Terry brings the seven-pointed star, which Davos then reads. Davos asks for a book and reads it, unlike Ariane. And he also eats his food, right? Unlike yep. Arian, absolutely. And I, I first of all, I want to call out throughout because Davos was also in prison again at the beginning of this book, right? At, at the sisters for a little bit. He always eats pretty well in prison. He, mm -hmm. he really does. But I did think of Arian a lot in this chapter, especially because of you know how everything would have been structured before. But the way that Davos's imprisonment is described as quite comfortable. 
kind of like area ends. And then, of course, in this chapter, we get that revelation later of there actually being a revenge plot and then being like brought into the fold of them, which is very much like what happens within the Arianne's storyline. Yeah, it, it's very reminiscent of The Watcher in this book, as we chatted about last episode. Yeah, and the princess in the tower. In the tower is Davos yeah. a princess in the tower? Thoughts? Aw, uh, Davos is my Disney princess in the tower. Yeah. And at last, Davos oh my god, what song? light. Oh my god, or how far we'll go. I'm not going to sing... I've been Moana. standing here on the black the water. Oh my god! All of my sons are dead except for three. Uh, let's be real; those Uh-oh. two don't matter. I'm just kidding. Okay. <clears throat> well, Davos's cell overall remained a cell. It has solid stone walls and an oaken iron door, and heavy iron fetters in the ceiling, waiting for the Onion Knight to be put within them. He wonders if today could be the day, and any day could be his last, obviously, but he thinks the worst part is not the dying, it's not knowing when or how. So I know that I'm I'm pretty sure that this is what this line is meant to be, right? I know this is probably the point, but I'm also just like, yo, isn't that like life for everyone? We don't know what or how. <laughs> That's how all of our deaths work. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is an important part of his psyche right now at this point. I think sure. he's coming to peace with it as we're about to hear from the letters he's writing. Uh, he's trying to come to terms with it and the things he's done and the person he's been and the type of person he's been and the types, I guess I could say. But I think this line is especially applicable to some of the other deaths that we see. Uh, the worst part is not the dying. It's not knowing when or how. That comes up pretty rapidly for a few characters. There are some characters that we just don't care about, like Kevin, right? Like, oh, you sucker, you <laughs> shitty sucker. But I think it's pretty applicable for Quentin, who's coming up, for example. You know, uh, men's lives have meaning that their death is a pretty similar statement to be made here. And John, John's about to die, not knowing when or how, just daggers in the dark. And I love that our friend Danielle brought this back to our forefront in terms of the men's lives have meaning not their deaths because it manderly makes himself uh, an argument against it right manderly says of the man who died in davos instead that he might be doing more in death than he ever did in life but i'm coming back to davos's uh statement here there's a part of it that kind of feels like the torturous part to him is the mantra that we know is so popularized in Arya's storyline in Game of Thrones of the not today. Every time Davos is like, well, not today, that almost makes it more suspenseful and more torturous to him that he has not faced the god of death that day. That's a great point. And this entire moment of him remembering, like, or realizing this cell is a cell, uh, even the construction of it. We talked a lot about the construction Mm. of the mermaid's court last week and this week when you look at the construction of this it does have an oaken iron door barred and locked and it reminds me of another mantra from another man who uh didn't know when or how he was going to die but we know when or how he died right duncan the tall guard me well or else i'm dead and doomed to hell uh i think that that seems significant that it's an oaken iron door here it does it does and that they both right rose rose high up from being Nothing, yeah. lowborn exactly yes 
Well, again, Davos has used has been used to being captive before. Uh, we've all been there for quite a few of those times. But usually it's with other prisoners in the dungeons where you share your fears, your hopes. <laughs> it seems like really beautiful. And I guess we saw that a little with Alistair Florent. But this time's different because besides his jailers, he was all alone in the wolf's den. But at least his jailers talked to him. Arianne didn't have that. Even the cells that lay beneath him, the torture chambers, the dank pits with the huge rats, were unoccupied according to the jailers. And Sir Bartmus... The chief jailer reminds him of this. He liked to boast in his cups, which is apparently like always, that he saved Wyman's life on the trident and that the wolf's den was his reward. Some reward, right? It does remind me again of Mord being stuck in those sky cells in the Vale, but it is a little different. Bartimus is really happy. Yeah, and... You know, we talked about kind of how when Davos walks through to the mermaid's court, he had all the beautiful trophies and the ships and stuff along the way of like, ah, this is the Manderley's court of items, you know, just random, beautiful, valuable items. They had no other fucking place to put them, so they threw them at Newcastle. And here you see that of the people, like they're proud of working here. They're proud of the history of this. They know the history of this. This is, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like if you met Davos at Storm's End or at Dragonstone, right? Now, he'd be like, yes, I can give you a tour of these places. Come along. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, uh, we are going to get quite a few history lessons from them, just as we got a history lesson on the Manderleys last chapter. And there's other staff here. Davos barely sees all of them, though, right? There's a cook, a guardsman, washerwoman, turnkeys. Though he does get to see Terry, as you said, Terry brings him a book. Terry's young, one of the washerwoman's sons, 14 to 15 years old. And again, there's Garth, and Garth is old, huge, and bald. He's got a glower on his face. And Davos knows from his smuggling years when a man just isn't one to be crossed, and he knows that he should hold his tongue around Garth. He's much more friendly when it comes to Terry and Bartimus and... He always thanks them, asking them about their hopes and their dreams and making requests, small ones, but little requests. They always grant, right? Like little soap, little water, book, candles. He's always very grateful, very gracious. Terry obviously reminds Davos of his son. Uh, He's of an age with Davin, and Terry talks about wanting to go off to war and to be a knight. And you've spoken quite a bit about economic disparity, right, that we see at White Harbor and people that are forced to sell their body, sell their labor, uh, whether it's through trade, whether it's through trafficking. And that's true of most history, right? I mean, we, we still do that. Colleges here, you know, allow the military to come recruit and exploit people uh, and people that are in that position where they need money or they need something. Well, you can always get a bowl of slop, right? If you fight for the day, and if you don't have food to survive, you're going to die anyways. Why not join the war? And White Harbor is absolutely simmering on this edge of war and this exploitation of bodies. Davos was brave, right? When he was in wartime, he he was like, I'm just going to take the L. I'm going to drive in, get my boat right on in there, feed Stannis and his crew, you know, take my punishment, but hope I get to live to see another day and make some money and exploit this war. And he does. He loses his fingers, but he took that gamble, and that's what he got out of it. Uh, And Terry probably reminds Davos of him at that age, right? He saw Roro die when he was young, and he had to make his own way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why he can, as you said, relate to Terry. And Davos, I think, in a way, kind of shows 
Terry some of the possibilities, but at the same time, maybe not because he's like in jail. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can be like me, kid. <laughs> in prison. Often. And, and they do drink together, right? Terry's like, I need someone to talk to, to what, I guess, gossip about his mom. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he brings Davos wine. Uh, but, like, you know, Davos tells him stories about, like, being a knight and things like that. And that's something that Terry's like, I, I want that for myself. A-, a lot of the young boys do. Yes. And whenever Davos tries to instigate conversation about Lord Manderley or Stannis or the phrase, the men won't speak. They'll talk about everything else, right? That's where he learns about Terry's backstory and gets the hot gossip of the betting of the guardsmen. She, uh, the mother is betting two of the guardsmen who are on separate watches. So one day those ships are just gonna cross on by in the night. And uh oh, some nights Terry does bring wine, like you said. And Sir Bartimus doesn't care about the outdoors, right? Like Terry's like, tell me about the smuggler's life. And Sir Bartimus doesn't give a shit. He's like, yeah, whatever. I lost my leg in the war to a horse. It's not really in the war. It's just to a horse. And he says a maester had to cut it off with a saw. But he had come to love being inside at the Wolf's Den and its history. He says that the den is much older than White Harbor and that it was raised by King John Stark to defend the mouth of the White Knife from raiders. Many younger sons of the king in the north, brothers, uncles, cousins, headed up the castle, passing it to their sons and grandsons in branches of House Stark started. The Greystarks held the den for five centuries until the Dreadfort rose in rebellion, and of course the Manderleys had joined them at the time. After their fall, the castle went to House Flint for a century, House Lock for two, Slates, Longs, Holts, Ashwoods all commanded, charged to keep the river safe by Winterfell. Reavers from the Three Sisters took the castle once, and during the wars between Winterfell and the Vale, Osgood Aaron, the Old Falcon, besieged it. When King Edric Stark grew too weak, the wolf's den was captured by slavers in the Stepstones, the old black stone walls bearing witness to it all. Sir Bartimus then tells Davos of the cruel winter that befell the White Knife, which froze and the winds came howling down, driving the Stepstone slavers inside to their fires. And while they did that, the new king, King Brandon Stark, Edric's great-grandson, descended upon them, Brandon Ice Eyes. He took back the wolf's den, stripped the slavers, gave them to the slaves he had found chained in the dungeon, and from there they hung the entrails of the slavers in the heart tree, an offering to the old gods. Yes, we have this line of, Your seven don't know winter, and winter don't know them. Davos could not argue with the truth of that. (laughs) And... I think there's some Southerners that could argue with that this week, first of all. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Wow. Things are wild this week. Um, in case any Topical of you humor are- for 2021. Yeah, in case any of you are charting um, history, you know, if you are listening to this episode after the fact and charting all of the big events that have happened throughout the past <laughs> years, through the any of the current events that we mentioned in the podcast, but... Speaking of history, I do appreciate this history lesson from Bartimus, and I, I do think it's really cool that he's so into this place. I do also wonder, is Bartimus the George R. R. Martin self-insert? Probably. Like, just a little. 
Second, I also feel like the history here and this lesson that we get and how it's uh, all leading up to these things feels a little bit like foreshadowing for the kingships of John and Bran, especially as we talk about those sacrifices to the old gods, which is something that we get revealed to an extent in Bran's chapters in one of his visions. Oh, that's right. And, you know, I was trying to check the timeline. So the Night's King, a lot of people theorize that he could have been the Night's King. Uh, the Night's King was brother to Brandon the Breaker, though, but it's probably not. <laughs> oh, sidebar, this is a great comment out of context. Someone on the Westeros forums back in 2015 said, The Night's King was brother to Brandon the Breaker. While a Stark, it would be inconceivable to name your two sons both Brandon. Dude, I was thinking that just now. I was like, someone someone could totally name both their kids Brandon. That's not out of the cards anymore. <laughs> not at all. That. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people theorize that this Brandon Ice Eyes could have been the Night King. I don't think it sinks upright because Brandon the Breaker was said to be his brother, right? So I don't know. It's anyone's Game of Thrones, but that's interesting. <laughs> it is anyone's Game of Thrones. If only David and Dan could tell us uh, what what it all means it does feel like some good foreshadowing uh, a lot of this as we mentioned the white harbor in general has kind of th this feel of the future you know this is someday when things are good and there's no war prosperity maybe for us yeah i mean that's that's what they're all hoping for but until then davos asks bartimus what gods he kept and bartimus keeps the old ones there's this line, when Sir Bartimus grinned, he looked just like a skull. It was a very creepy line, but I loved it. It reminds me of Stannis right now. We talked about skulls last episode of Kings in Attendance around skulls, so felt like a standout line. He explains his own forebears were the men who strung the entrails in the trees. And Davos is like, wow, I'm surprised Northmen make blood sacrifices still to the heart trees. And I'm like, wow, it's a whole new world out there, Davos, first of all. <laughs> Fire sacrifices of people aren't, aren't it anymore. And second, I have real bad news about where you're going, Davos. Yeah, maybe Davos is just going to tell everyone, oh, interesting that you sacrifice people this way. I've seen a sacrifice happen <laughs> this way. <laughs> He's about to become like a blood sacrifice anthropologist. He's like, That's you know, so if you sad. actually get in there with your knife at this angle, you can make it bleed out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he's like, have you tried this prayer? Have you tried oh. sacrificing it in this way? And do it Or leeches? Let's start with leeches, everyone. Listen, 30 minutes past nine each evening, hour of the goat, you're going to do great. The goat. <laughs> ah, the black goat of Kohor. Well... Bartimus says, the Southerners don't know much and more about the North. Davos reflects on this, staring down at his letters that he had scratched out on paper the previous night. I was a better smuggler than a knight, he had written to his wife. A better knight than a king's hand. A better king's hand than a husband. I am so sorry, Maria. I have loved you. Please forgive the wrongs I did you. Should Stannis lose his war? Our lands will be lost as well. Take the boys across the narrow sea to Bravos and teach them to think kindly of me if you would. Should Stannis gain the Iron Throne, House Seaworth will survive, and Devon will remain at court. 
He will help you place the other boys with noble lords where they can serve as pages and squires and win their knighthoods. So, there's a lot, I think. There's a lot to unpack in this letter. I'm going to start with just one of the lines first, which is this insight into one of the many reasons, right? We, we're constantly trying to figure out, why does Davos follow Stannis? And he says here, should Stannis lose the war, our lands will be lost as well. And we have discussed it before, but this way it is more explicit, lends more weight to that idea that advancing his family's station or their well-being is one of the reasons, like, part of why he so fervently follows Stannis. There is more than one reason, right, as we discussed last episode, why Davos does, uh, I think, show such loyalty, but it that it's called out here so explicitly feels significant. I'm going to play devil's advocate because sometimes, you know, I like to be sassy. I want to zero in on if Stannis loses his war, our lands will be lost as well. So what's protecting their lands right now? Because aren't armies of men attacking the Stormlands right now? Yes, they are. He doesn't know that, but... um. And yep. wait, sorry, and how many men does Stannis have guarding the Stormlands right now? Oh, we can't reveal that. Davos won't say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I won't do Davos like that. <laughs> Eliana, we can't reveal that. Me and my client cannot reveal that right now. Uh, Davos is my client. So, what are the odds that men might storm his lands anyways? And like, Follow-up question to the council. If Maria's like, Davos will be loyal, lol, will they just be Gucci with it? Like, what happens when the tax collector comes and she just gives the money to Aegon's crew instead this time? Are they alright? Yeah, I have no idea. Or do they become hostages, right? That that could yeah. be I guess they're not useful as hostages anymore if everyone thinks Davos is dead. And that is part of the benefits of being dead <laughs> and that's something we discussed in a, a previous episode maybe two yeah. episodes or so ago right that if he's dead he gets out of like you know anyone using his family as leverage against him which is good and i think that is part of what is in this letter again there's a lot of things to discuss as you were saying like how's maria gonna feel about it and this is one of those times where davos is this is like the only direct interaction we really see mm-hmm. with maria and it's not even obviously that direct right but right where he really dwells on their relationship and we're see we're seeing like that he feels that of all the things he was the one thing he lived up to and failed at the most was being a husband and we see that Perhaps this is one of Davos's biggest regrets. Maybe that's one of the reasons he doesn't go home, right? Does he just feel too much shame to go back to Maria? And face what has happened, whatever has happened. Yeah. And it's it's also interesting that he says at the end there is husband, but not father. Mm-hmm. I do think there's something to it that may serve as motivation, and we'll talk more about maybe his future later. But here, especially his motivation to maybe say... Jon Snow, if he's hanging out in the north still, we should join up with Team Danny because she wants to take back the Stormlands where oh, my family is. I wonder if it also could remain as motivation for why Davos ties off to the dragon or ties off to the north in pursuit of the dragon. Danny will probably come back to Dragonstone as we've chatted about and or take it back or whichever. Uh, I think she probably would want to take back the Stormlands. 
she has to go to the Stormlands in some sense, in my opinion, because yeah. I think there's a challenge there, right? She's Daenerys Stormborn Targaryen, and then there's a challenge of taking Storm's End. There's a sort of poetry yeah. there, if I'm going to go George Lucas about <coughs> it. Oh my god, which it is that scene in Star Wars, I'm just saying, where they fight in the lightning storm. That's literally like Aemond One-Eye, that's, uh, that's why it's called Storm's End. Uh, anyways, so... What was that? <laughs> Please feel free to omit that. <laughs> no, I'm keeping it. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so he had written letters to his sons, as we said, in hopes that they remember A, who the fuck he is, and B, like, hey, that's our dad who, you know, worked really long hours and suffered for us and lost his fingers for us, kind of, to give us yeah. a better life. Yeah, and I think he he does legitimately hope that in many ways. And I do, the way this is all written is interesting because he thinks that he bought their position with his fingertips because mm-hmm. it, I, I just think that language is interesting because of how Davos is justifying what happened to his fingers. Because as we've seen throughout Davos's chapters and the way people sort of regard him, like a lot of people think that what Stannis did in cutting off Davos's fingers was pretty fucked up. Like, Edric Storm straight up says, like, yeah, I think that was wrong. My dad would have never done such a thing. And, yeah, Davos thinks of his fingertips as the price for his family's station. He bought it, as opposed to this narrative that we've been told throughout a lot of the story, right? That, including Davos's own POVs, that Davos was made a knight as a reward for bringing food to the starving people in Storm's End during the siege. So that framing feels important because if it's not a reward, it's now no longer even a gift from Stannis, who Davos and Clash told us was his god, right? That Stannis had given him everything that he has. It's this sort of idea of Stannis's mercy. It's something that Davos has earned, literally bought with his blood, sweat, and tears, his own flesh. And it means something in a chapter where Lady Hornwood is brought up in two, she's brought up in two consecutive Davos chapters, and the horror of how she lost her fingers is revisited. And it does feel kind of like Davos is avoiding the apparent of like, as you've said, it's the very literal translation of our bodies and laboring our bodies and what we get in exchange for the labors we put through our bodies, right? Yeah. Uh, Davos quite literally gave his fingers for this role. That's what he feels he lost. Yeah, well well said. I think that comes back in a bit in this chapter, right? That duality of what people do with their bodies, right? And is mm-hmm. it part of you? Is it not? The prices for it and things like that because... You know, Manderly says his body feels to him at times like a prison. So it, it, bodies become a very big forefront of this chapter. A very tangible thing. Yeah. Well, Stefan and Stannis's notes, th- his sons, Davos' sons that he writes to them, they're stiff and awkward as he barely knew them. To Devin, he writes more, right, about his pride about being the king's squire, and about Devin's duty now to protect his lady mother and his younger brothers. And then he writes, signs it off with, Tell his grace I did my best. He ended, I'm sorry that I failed him. I lost my luck when I lost my finger bones the day the river burned below King's Landing. Do you think somewhere Stannis is looking up at the moon? Not the same moon, that'd be impossible. But thinking the same thing. 
tell Davos I did my best. I'm sorry I failed him. That's it. That's all the Stavos you people get out of me. I hope you're happy. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if Sanus did think that for a split second. He'd never admit it to himself and we'll never know, but... He's big Sundari vibes for sure. Oh my god. Davos shuffles through his letters, reading them repeatedly, wondering, should I change words? Should I add more? Thinking that words should come easier to a man at the end of his life. I'm pretty sure that this part where Davos like rereads the letters over and over again, deciding, oh, should I change this word or delete one here? Should I add a word here? Like, that's George. Yeah. That's George's commentary about his editing process. He's like, see me, see me, readers. <laughs> I love when George winks at us a little, and that's definitely one of them. Davos reflects on his rise from flea bottom to lord hand, even learning to read and write, and that he didn't do so ill. He's pulled out of these thoughts by the rattling of keys, and the man who steps in is not one of his normal jailers. It's Robat Glover, we're about to find out. He's tall and a little haggard, with gray-brown hair and a long sword, and a scarlet cloak fastened with a mailed fist brooch. He tells Davos they don't have much time, and they must move quickly, doing introductions on the go. I love the call out of the word please here that tips Davos off that something isn't as he thought in terms of his execution. He's like, that was really nice. In <laughs> having to split feast and dance, right? George and his editing. Um, as our friend Jeff pointed out previously that these chapters were originally written for feast. George has, I think, done something really fun here in choosing to then instead move the Davos chapters to dance when that split happened. Because we get a lot of that suspense. He gets to play a little bit with that suspense of what's going to happen to Davos, right? We're watching, like, maybe Davos's final moments in the story. Or have all of those characters that we read in Feast been tricked? And like, wow, what a twist. And of course, like, it's the latter. And a lot of people, like, predicted that because the fakeouts happen sometimes. But, like, I, I, it's fun. This is fun. Look at all the fun we're having, to quote Tyrion. But there's a lot of those little moments in this chapter, right? Where you get that nudging and the elbowing, right? And going, eh? Eh? What do you think about that phrase, dead man? And that please by Robert Glover. And in terms of Davos' character, again, coming back to his gift with people and him kind of being a bit of a natural at politics in that way, he's so astute with people's language and and noticing that dead man and that please and does and thinking about like how weird it is that his cell is pretty nice i mean this is not the first time that he's had again great accommodations in his dungeon but we the reader are kind of tipped off about the soon to be revealed twist with how isolated the prison is because of course they have to keep davos from the public eye yeah, and it is very, very crazy. There's tunnels under the stairs, right? It does remind you a bit of Tyrion's escape. Another ex-hands escape or hands escape. And Davos mm -hmm. isn't the only dead man being talked about here, right? Because Robert Glover is also kind of seen as a dead man. We haven't seen this guy in pages and pages and pages. We all thought he was a goner. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Davos realizes this is a Glover of Deepwood Mott. He does get corrected, because Gelbert is the lord of Deepwood, thanks to King Stannis, Robat says. Stannis took it back from the iron bitch who stole it, Asha. He catches him up on some of the other happenings. Moat Kaelin fell, Roose returned with Arya, 
and the phrase, and all the North is going to Barrowton to watch Ramsay get married to Arya. Davos makes him promise to deliver his letters if he's suddenly killed in all this drama, and Robat gives him his word, though he says death won't come at their hands if it comes. They crossed the castle's godswood where the heart tree had grown so huge and tangled that it had choked out all the oaks and elms and birch and sent its thick, pale limbs crashing through the walls and windows that looked down on it. Its roots were as thick as a man's waist, its trunk so wide that the face carved into it looked fat and angry. I love the obvious Wyman imagery on this. As we get into the end of the chapter, it looks like Wyman. I like that, because Wyman's like, you know, the Manderleys in general. There's a sort of perfect bridge between the old gods and the new. I also like it because we get the reveal in this chapter where Wyman's basically like, this is my fucking house. No fucking fray. It's going to get the best of me in this house. If I die, I die on my terms, motherfucker. And like, you just can feel the weirwood blood seeping through. Oh, absolutely. I mean... We're we're obviously gonna get there, but that's you know this chapter is iconic for many reasons, but most of it is Wyman Manderly. God it's bless metal him. as fuck. Old gods, mm. new gods, bless him. Glover lights a torch beyond the weirwood, and down they go into a salt crusted cellar, accompanied by musty fell scents. Down a tunnel and down more steps. Robert explains that the passage runs beneath the castle stair and up to Newcastle, a secret passage. It would not do for you to be seen, my lord. You were supposed to be dead. Porridge for the dead man. That's Davos in his head. That's literally the line. <laughs> I, I appreciate the intonation and thank the, you, uh, thank you. The clarification, thank you, Eliana. Sometimes I feel that. like I need to clarify things. We're gonna explore maybe a little more of House Glover's possible role as we get through this episode, but. Robat is a part of the crew that was ordered by Roos to go to Duskendale to take out their fury when Deepwood was taken. Later, we get the reveal that Tywin and Roos were in cahoots, right? Roos was flirting with the dark side, and he did go over to it. And the battle at Duskendale is a disaster for the Northmen at Tarly's strong, annoying asshole hands. Robat leads a retreat to Harrenhal, he goes into capture... Rob plans to trade him for Martin Lannister, and he ends up going to Golden Tooth to await a hostage exchange. Rob dies, you know that part. And Robat ends up <laughs> sent back with the phrase to White Harbor, and this is the Robat that we are now seeing. He has just shown up, haggard, beat up, but recovering, and being treated by Wyman nicely, obviously. Yeah, and I love that we kind of got a hint earlier on, right? They were like... I've heard that Robert Glover's in the city trying to recruit men, but mm -hmm. here he is recruiting someone. Good for you. Good for you, Robert. <laughs> they emerge into a warm, comfortable room with a mirrorish carpet, beeswax tables, sheepskins, and maps, and beneath the maps sits Wyman Manderly, richly garbed in a golden embroidered turquoise velvet doublet. Fancy. He offers Davos food and wine, but Davos says he'd rather get down to business. He's like, I came here to treat, not to drink with you. Wyman sighs, begging Davos to please sit and drink to Wireless's return home. And I love that there's a, a couple of pleases in this in this conversation. As Manderly shows courtesy to Davos, he says to him at first, when, when they first meet, please sit. 
I also love that in order to make Davos feel more comfortable, and I don't know if it's like also to make Davos a little more pliable to this crazy fucking ass that he's gonna make. <laughs> Manderly refuses to drink, right? He pours out his drinks, he's like, alright, fine, so we won't drink together, but please, you have some wine. Do it without me. <laughs> I've fucked your life up enough for the week, please enjoy some good wine. I mean... <sighs> You know, if your life's fucked up, like, doesn't matter that it's, like, good or bad wine. Like, thankfully, Terry. Terry has been here bringing Davos wine. Bless that boy. Yeah, Terry deserves a promotion, for sure. Knight that motherfucker. <laughs> that 14-year-old boy. Cut The welcoming feast is heard above. Wyman explains they eat lamprey pie and venison uh. above. Uh, 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 and for uh. Ray... Uh, that Winifred dances with the fray she is to marry, and toasts are being made to their friendship. He explains slowly he's eaten too much, and their friends of Frey will not question a lengthy visit to the privy. He has Robat pour the hand, Davos, he calls him the hand, wine, and Davos is like, so how did I die? By the axe, <laughs> Wyman says, head and hands mounted over the seal gate, and his eyes out across the harbor. They dipped the head in tar. Davos asks who died for him, and Wyman says he has a common face. They chose someone with such features. He follows up the man was a criminal, and his dying may accomplish more good than anything he did while living. Interesting. Again, a counter to that line of men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. So we are going to come back to Aegon later, but... A lot of what Davos' storyline does here ties in really well. I think Davos' chapters in general tie in really well with a lot of the characters around him. Uh, but here, especially with a couple of the other hands that we've seen throughout the series and how they have not been very lucky. I'm going to start off with that line that we all know of, if one hand can die, why not another? Davos, like Ned, is imprisoned for love of a Baratheon man. And those words, right, that, that line is uttered in an exchange between Varys and Illyrio discussing the fate of Ned, but also someone else. Varys, who, of course, helps Tyrion Lannister, as we've said before, who was once a hand. Varys helps him escape execution and spirits him away across the sea to go retrieve and help out with some other, like, boy heir, <laughs> as Manderly and Glover are doing right now with Davos. And then, of course, Davos is a dead man now. And being a dead man, no one's going to be looking for him or wondering what happened to him, just like some other hand that has died before. John Connington, who again is shepherding a boy that they mean to crown. And going by how things went for all of these men, maybe it's not the politicking that makes Davos such a good or believable hand, so much as maybe how unlucky he is. <laughs> you have that right, right? Somehow the, the odds just keep going in this manner. Like, yes, lucky, but lucky enough to not die. That's about where it stops. <laughs> he is, but he is dead. Right, right. Who? Right. Who's dead? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Wyman explains that he bears Davos no ill will, that he had to put on a show for the phrase. Davos commends his performance, saying it seemed mighty real to me. Your granddaughter was convincing. And Wyman agrees. She was brave. Even under the threat of taking her tongue, she reminded him of the great debt they owe the Starks, one that can't be repaid. He says his granddaughters both spoke from the heart, and his good daughter Lady Leona did, too. She is a foolish, frightened woman, and wireless is her life. 
Not every man has it in him to be Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, or Simeon Star-Eyes, and not every woman can be as brave as my Wyla or her sister Winifred, who did know, yet played her part fearlessly. Yes. We'll come back to this. Ah, oh, bless them. And as you said, you know, before... Actually, you and I were discussing this offline, right? The compassion that Wyman shows to Lady Leona in the previous chapter, mm-hmm. it, it does feel significant, right? Because she is being a little difficult, and she really does mean what she's saying, but... And she means well. She's afraid. She's frightened. And yeah, he physically comforts her, and it's not even his granddaughter. It's not his daughter. That's his daughter-in-law, and... Uh, we're going to talk about his shrewd behavior today, obviously, more. He is very calculating and shrewd, but you can tell in that moment, like, he comforts her physically, he puts his hand on her shoulder to say, I know, I know, Leona, it's okay. It has her back. And I thought that was sweet in the face of all this craziness. I, I agree. He's a complex man, right? He he is very loving towards his family, and he's smart. And I, I think there's a reason why... People were so disappointed to not get Wyman in the show. He's he's a fantastic character and someone to really look forward to. I mean, it's important it, it, for Davos to have like an anchor. This is his anchor in the north, and uh, yeah, it, it's motivation. And Davos didn't really have a story in the bad show, so. <sighs> well, it's a good thing that these books are, have expanded upon what David and Dan. Oh my God! Originally wrote. Uh... Um, Wyman does that too, right? He begins to explain the great complexities of the Mummer's farce. How Tywin held Willis and extorted White Harbor to bend the knee to Roos of he and his people who would suffer as the reigns of Castamere had. But then, Tywin died! And the Freys turned up with Wendell's bones to make peace and a marriage pact. But Wyman's like, I'm not about to agree to that so easily, especially without Willis. And Davos' appearance helps him sell it. Davos calls what Wyman has done a great risk, and Wyman's like, well, it wasn't that big of a risk, because if the phrase had actually climbed up the gate and seen that it wasn't you there, I had a backup plan, and it was we were going to kill you. Yeah, that's a, that's a backup plan. <laughs> huh? <laughs> I do love this, though, because Davos just very matter-of-factly goes, I see. And he responds, I hope so. You have sons of your own, you said. Three, thought Davos, though I fathered seven. So Davos seems to be thinking of his sons, obviously, very heavily Mm -hmm. through this, trying to understand the psyche of Wyman and what Wyman wants and needs. But I did notice that, that he's highlighting a lot of holy connections as well this chapter, right? thinking a lot about the gods, kind of trying to find and hold on to some sort of purpose throughout all of this, even religious, right? With the the reading of the seven star earlier. Yeah. It is interesting, you know, when I think about it, with those religious ideas, seven is obviously a number that's significant in a lot of things, religion, magic, Mm -hmm. things like that. But so is the number three, and he goes from seven to three, another Mm -hmm. significant number. They That's were all. seven against three. Uh. Right? Isn't and, that yeah. it? Yeah. Something Ned? like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Huh. Huh. Well. Soon I must return to the feast to toast my friends of Frey. They watch me, sir. Day and night, their eyes are on me, noses sniffing for some whiff of treachery. You saw them? 
the arrogant Sir Jared and his nephew Rhaegar, a smirking worm who wears a dragon's name. Behind them both stand Simmond, clinking coins. That one has bought and paid for several of my servants and two of my knights. One of his wife's handmaids has found her way into the bed of my own fool. If Stannis wonders that my letters say so little, it is because I dare not even trust my maester. Theomor is all head and no heart. You heard him in my hall. Maesters are supposed to put aside old loyalties when they don their chains, but I cannot forget. Theomor was born a Lannister of Lannisport and claimed some distant kinship to the Lannisters of Casterly Rock. Foes and false friends are all around me, Lord Davos. They infest my city like roaches, and at night I feel them crawling all over me. My son Wendell came to the twins a guest. He ate Lord Walder's bread and salt and hung his sword upon the wall to feast with friends, and they murdered him. Murdered! I say, and may the phrase choke upon their fables. I drink with Jared, Jake with Simmond, promise Rhaegar the hand of my own beloved granddaughter. But never think that means I've forgotten. The North remembers, Lord Davos. The North remembers, and the Mama's farce is almost done. My son is home. Thank you. You can give me my Emmy. Um, you can deliver it. You can straight up deliver the Emmy to Give me. me the BAFTA. <laughs> Give me the BAFTA. Thank you. That was Chloe uh, Ketchum. North- <laughs> that was. That's that's her real. Reading for Wyman Manderley. <laughs> Dude, Yo. you, should, you should send, send that. Oh. oh my god. The North remembers. I remember Chloe. Holy shit. Yeah, I fucking That <sighs> was. did it. When he just, like, you can hear him. Like, you don't need me reading it to you because anyone can think about that passage in their head. Anyone can hear, you can hear him in your head just say, like, the mummer's farce is over. Ah, let's fucking go. And then, like, the my son is Is home. home. Oh, let's fucking go. The North remembers, bitch. That's, that's why I'm in Manderley right now. Ah, you know, like, not to uh, be a buzzkill, but just came to my mind it reminds me of rn the opposite of the rn chapter it might be in the winds of winter so mine are the winds of winter spoilers since i have the book and no one else does haha <laughs> no i'm just kidding but it reminds me of <laughs> the opposite wish. of doran right like doran mm-hmm. saying where is my son oh yeah not to not to bum you out for a moment but anyways back to the <gasps> north they, remembers but, but i don't think that's wrong i don't think that's wrong we talked about it a little last chapter and there mm-hmm. is a lot i think that that is meant to contrast and compare right like the, the vengeance gone wrong this was yeah. not supposed to happen and yeah. this wasn't either right but it, the timeline's a little different uh well, i was a little like this was supposed die. to happen yeah i mean wendell did die right this would right. be the Wendell to Quentin, I guess, but or the Wendell, the Wendell to the Elia and Oberyn, right? You don't usually mm-hmm. just seek vengeance for no reason. They're seeking vengeance because of Wendell. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack in that speech, but honestly, there really also isn't. Right? It's a simple speech that it, it, it drives home that heart of what the end of a Dance with Dragons or the middle, I should say, of a Dance with Dragons starts to heighten. This idea of vengeance, this idea of the good guys maybe could have their day, right? Once in a while. 
Every dog has his day. Even the good guys could. It gets us hype. And it also comes back with that idea of the Mummer's farce, which has been introduced throughout the story. Mummery in general is a pretty big theme George plays with on and off. I did a little bit of Google sheeting today. (laughs) I was having some fun. We're introduced to this idea of mummery throughout the story as a pretty prominent theme, and in A Game of Thrones, it's pretty lightly used. We actually see literal mummer's troops in King's Landing for festival kind of things going on, but most strongly is the introduction of Varys. Arya seeing Illyrio and Varys in the dungeon, Ned says to her that, oh, it was probably a mummer, Arya. Hysterical, right? Very hysterical. As we now come back to it, because it was, it was Varys and Illyrio. And Varys telling Ned in the dungeons that he was in a mummer's troop before. This theme continues to emerge throughout the story. In A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, Mummery becomes personified in the introduction of the Bloody Mummers to the story, called Tywin's Bloody Mummers, some may call them, and they are a joke, right? Like, they are a total mummer's troop. They're false. They, uh, you look at them and they aren't what you'd expect for the bloody mummers of these sellswords. They're, they're something. And Danny, of course, has the Mummer's Dragon first appear in the House of the Undying Visions. In A Feast for Crows, Arya gets a first-hand experience in meeting Mummers and working with them, and begins to learn magical mummery through magic, right, yes, and learning to match people's tone and her empathy. But in A Dance with Dragons, George brings that to the front as well, because Arya once more learns about mummery as magic from the kindly man. He says Mummers change their faces with artifice. Sorcerers use glamours, weaving light and shadow and desire to make illusions that trick the eye. These arts you shall learn, but what we do here goes deeper. She goes on in The Winds of Winter, minor spoilers for Mercy, to work for Isambaro, the king of the mummers. Barristan, in a more figurative sense, falls for Hisdar's betrayal in the Myrony's court, and it's called Falling for the Mummery, and Quentin's friends call his adventure a mummer's show as well. Daenerys is told of the Mummer's Dragon in A Dance with Dragons in Daenerys 2 by Quaithe, and in Danny 3, she proceeds to think of Zaro Zoandoxus' tears as Mummer's tears. She's not wrong. But as we go to the north in A Dance with Dragons, we have three prominent Mummer's arcs going on. Jon, Theon, and of course Davos. Theon recalls the wedding of Jaime Ramsay a Mummer's farce. That was why Bruce Bolton had clothed him as a lord again to play his part in the Mummer's farce. Once that was done, once their false Arya had been wed and embedded, Bolton would have no use for Theon Turncloak. In John's arc, contrasting what Davos is currently doing for Stannis' regime, John calls Stannis accepting the free folk through the wall and all of the performance that comes with it, like taking the weapons and burning it and scaring them and Uh, making them burn part of their religion with the Weirwood branch. He calls it a mummer's farce several times. In fact, he calls it that four times he talks about mummery going on, and it's all about this moment. The tunnel through the wall was narrow and twisting, and many of the wildlings were old, ill, or wounded, so the going was painfully slow. By the time the last of them had bent the knee, night had fallen. The pit fire was burning low, and the king's shadow on the wall had shrunk to a quarter of its former height. Jon Snow could see his breath in the air. Cold, he thought, and getting colder. This mummer's show has gone on long enough. 
So now Davos has this mummer's farce of Wyman revealing that, yes, you were playing a part too, Davos. You helped me out in securing this with the phrase, so they really think that I'm loyal. Yeah, and the farce isn't over yet, right? Wyman's going to go and attend that wedding that you mentioned. <laughs> that uh, Theon is also a guest at. A lot of these people don't want to be guests, but there they are. And uh, it is a mummer's farce, and it, I think this is a great breakdown of the way that it's been ramping up in the story. I think we're going to see it come forward a lot more, right? As you said, there's the Mercy chapter, and of course, Varys and Illyrio are now kind of secured where they've been brought to the forefront out of the shadows as big players in everything that's been going on in in the game and davos himself right a a part of what makes it so much a mummer's farce for everyone is this slipperiness of identity happening for a lot of people this artifice as people become others and davos is also doing that right he's part of a mummer's farce and taking on a different one as he goes to skagos and he's a dead man (laughs) i almost wonder if uh and because you know the the vision of the dragon bobbing in a clash kings in the house the undying i wonder if the idea for the winds winner is to bring these mummer's farces to the forefront as actual mummery with Arya joining the mummer's troop Maybe that vision coming true in the end of The Winds of Winter or in the beginning of A Dream of Spring. I find it interesting that George is shifting to two plot points. Like, those are two plot points that will happen of an actual physical representation of mummery. Yeah. In the I don't know. I think that'd be interesting. Like, yeah, I, I think we could see that actual mummer's dragon. We could see it in a parade or something celebrating the other mummer's dragon. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the uh, the headcanon, right? That that is the parade and that maybe the parade gets ruined and turned into a barbecue instead halfway. We don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. We don't know. We don't know. It's anyone's game. A Thrones. Well, Davos offers Manderly justice instead of, uh, as he offered him before, vengeance, right? He's saying that, well, King Stannis is able to give you justice. Is Robert Glover is like... It's really cute how loyal <laughs> you are. He says honorable, but he's like, it's so cute how much you, like, stan Stannis. He's like, but Stannis is your king, not ours. And Davos points out that, well, you lost your king. He's dead. And Mander's like, wait, that isn't Lord Eddard's only son. What? Oh, my God. Eddard Stark got busy? Um, you think Eddard Stark cheated on Catelyn? No. Before he met her? Never. <laughs> you could never cheat on- anyway, I actually- They were born don't... married. He was too shy. <laughs> yeah, he had no game. He tried. I respect that he tried. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am curious, though. The Glover thing here is interesting, right? Of what role they're going to play in the Stark Baratheon politics with what's going on here, but also maybe in defending Wyman or anything or revealing things to Stannis. Robert says that Stannis isn't his king, but his wife has just, like, pledged some men to Stannis' cause, uh, Sibyl Glover over in Deepwood Mott. It's also really awesome, I think, that we get all, all of these reveals about Lord Manderly in Davos's chapter, not in anyone else's, because I think it becomes really significant in terms of both of their characters and what they represent. 
put alongside one another. I think it's an interesting perspective into loyalty, that allegiance, especially to one's lords or kings. Because, again, Glover compliments Davos' loyalty because it's something that the Glovers and the Manderleys both recognize, right? And I don't think that there's any denying that, as we said many, many times, Lord Manderley's very shrewd, very cunning, calculated. He's played a lot of things very smart here to secure the rest of his family and their safety. I don't think that there's any denying that there could be a political advantage for him if he did find Rick and Stark and set him up as like set himself up as a potential regent uh, to Rickon, especially as we look at some of the things that happened in Fire and Blood. But I don't think that we can truly completely discount, despite that cynicism, like any sort of earnestness in Wyman's loyalty, because White Harbor has suffered greatly for this war. And we see it all throughout the city. Uh, they are, um, even though, you know, they are still in this war and bringing boys back into the war, there is an extent to which you can say they are trying to provide refuge to some of these people, right? And there's not necessarily a promise of safety. It's, I think, a little muddied. But the greatest case for Wyman's loyalty is Willa's impassioned speech. She wasn't brought into Manderley's plan because she's a little young and, as you can see, quite a spitfire. <laughs> but the fervor with which Wyla, like, spoke of how the Manderleys are stark men, right? That's what she says. She has to have learned that from somewhere. And for Wyman to be so proud of that speech that she gave shows that he believes that and that's probably where she learned that. And so, like, the loyalty that the Manderley show makes an interesting comparison for Davos's own loyalty, right? That we've been trying to examine throughout this entire read-through. He's so zealous about Stannis. But where Manderley is playing it really smart and securing the safety of his family first, Davos's decisions have kind of led to the ruin of a lot of his family. And I think it's arguable that, like Wyman, though, Davos is heading out for winter. And Wyman's probably going to die uh, on this last winter hunt. And Davos, I mean, I don't know, what is dead may never die. That seems to be where his, his is going, but he, he he's just much more blind, I think, in his faith. It's interesting that you bring up the dance, because it makes me think a little bit of where we leave off at the very end of Fire and Blood, right? With that hour of the wolf and everything going on, but specifically brings to mind Torin Manderley. Torin Manderley was the second son of Lord Desmond Manderley. Second son, right? So that could be Lord Wyless, maybe. Uh, he ends up Lord of White Harbor and Lord Regent in Hand of the King during the minority of King Aegon III. And it does make me wonder if that fun story of Torin Manderley being fired by Aegon III, because Torin, if you recall, uh, was making this beautiful big progress for the king and his wife, and they were going to go around the country and make the nation happy. And they're the new beautiful couple on the throne. And as soon as Egg 3 turned 16, he's like, nah, you're fired. It, something about this reminds me of that. Yeah. I do, uh, as I said in that episode, think Torn Manderley's idea was a good idea. But Oh, I agree. It would have been perfect. But I do think that there is a lot of room for setup and parallel there. We're going to talk yeah. a little bit about the fate of Rick and Stark and what might happen. But... This could be an Aegon III and Viserys meetup, right? Like, this could be Rickon Stark comes back to meet his brother Bran the King. You never know. Aw. Yeah. I never I, put those together until now. That's interesting. Yeah, and that he he's the Viserys, the 
Mm-hmm. Second. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, I didn't think about that either. And of course, Davos is, you know, he is seafaring, kind of like Alan. That's a great point, actually. We'll come back to that. For now, though, Manderly commands Robert to bring out the lad. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that, but here's another thing I'll say. This quote, Was it possible that one of Rob Stark's brothers had survived the ruin of Winterfell? Did Manderly have a Stark heir hidden away in his castle? A found boy or a feigned boy? The North would rise for either, he suspected. But Stannis Baratheon would never make common cause with an imposter. Stannis Baratheon, quit your job at the wall, Jon Snow, and let me put you in charge of Winterfell Baratheon? That one? Stannis hanging out with the bad car start right now, Baratheon? I'm just, I, I, I just, I don't know. Stannis is not really a great judgment of character. Anyways, uh, I, I really love how delicately George has been weaving, especially in Davos's plot, Throughout A Dance with Dragons, and some in A Feast for Crows, obviously, Aegon, the pisswater prince, is being purposefully kind of brought into this. And the terminology of a feigned boy, specifically, I thought was interesting. So Davos, of course, hearing about Daenerys and Aegon, respectively, and the lazy eel was already kind of our glimpse at this you know, the lines about if some king wanted me dead, well, then I'd be dead, or the pisswater prince story. But that language, a found boy or a feigned boy, is actually used going forward from this moment for Aegon by Kevin. Sir Kevin said, but we have enemies enough without offending Dorne. If Dorne Martell were to join his strength to Connington's in support of this feigned dragon, things could go very ill for all of us. And later in The Winds of Winter, Ariane 1, Damon also calls him a feigned dragon. He says, if Lord Connington's prince has a crushed skull, I'll believe Aegon Targaryen has returned from the grave. Elsewise, no, this is some feigned boy, no more, a sellsword's ploy to win support. I think it was a masterful use of space. I think the Lazy Eel especially was a great place to start planting this seed, but Davos's four-chapter arc in this book really served to kind of talk about identity. Right, introducing the idea of mm. fake identities in this book even heavier from a first hand, as well as, you know, accompany the John Connington stuff. But Davos is, as you've mentioned and I've mentioned, playing dead right now. He's dead. John Connington is living that same life, right? Another hand that's dead. Absolutely. And yeah, as you said, it ties in well with the the found boy, feigned boy, sets all that up. Cause what, just before this chapter in that lightning round, right, we see Aegon's making his moves and you know that there's this idea throughout this chapter as well you know Davos asks who died in his stead because he cares to know who paid that price so that Davos could be free to live and I think that ties in with Aegon's young Griff storyline because and of course some of the other things here too, right? Like what Manderly is about to attend when we talk about if someone is found or feigned because Arya is lost. And as we discussed in a Patreon episode long ago on identity, her not being there has allowed someone else to slip into the space of her own identity and take it, right? In terms of Jane Poole. But also this has happened before and Wyman took a page out of that book to an extent from Theon killing the Miller's boy. And it's... 
I think pertinent that Davos asks because Aegon slash Young Griff does not. He shows no curiosity, and if anything, he shows disdain when he talks. The wording is important. He calls him a piss water prince when he speaks of the babe who died so that he could survive, allegedly. And though there's probably no lower lowborn person that may have died so that Rhaegar's son could survive, slash what I'm saying is that I'm pretty sure Rhaegar's son died. Well, that one. <laughs> Rhaegar and Elia's son died. Like, someone did die, in, in any case, regardless, so that this Aegon could live and take on this role. The cost of a life, which Davos is very strongly about protecting, right? Like, everything is about the life of a bastard child. What's the life of a bastard child? For him, it's everything, and he's about protecting that. And it's a hard thing to confront when you don't have control over it. It's interesting yeah. to point out Aegon doesn't give a shit about the, that. Like, he doesn't care. It's been so long, and he's so detached from it in general. It wasn't even his choice. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. And I guess that's something that comes with wisdom, comes with age. Like, we know that Davos has a lot of that going on, the whole wisdom thing. But it gives you a little bit of that. But I don't think Aegon's, like, a bad kid, whoever he is. I just think he's misguided and was raised to he's, be a little snot. He's spoiled. Yeah, he's a spoiled little shithead. He's a little spoiled. Yeah, I mean, what boy in this fucking series isn't? Yeah, he's spoiled and he's a teenage boy who's been raised to think he's a prince and, like... I met a lot of teenage boys who aren't told they're princes, but sure as hell act like that someone told them that they are. And well, I I mean, that's just how it is. Like, I don't fault him for being a teenager, but I, 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 don't, I don't think that he's being very grateful, and at least Stavos is, and I wonder if we'll see him ruminate on that. It, it makes you actually see how he could be lined up to be the Aegon too, right, to Danny's Rhaenyra. Uh, when you find Aegon too in bed, or in bed the morning of everything yeah. going down, and he's all like, I don't care about being king. And he's like, well, all your brothers are going to die, and you're going to die. He's like, fine, I'll be king. Uh, that's kind of the whole Aegon thing, right? And that brattiness, that spoiled brattiness really comes out in that. Yeah. And I mean, also, you know, you have to question, did he really not? He probably didn't care that much. But at the same time, he we can see he does care later on and wants it, and... Yeah. To what extent is like that beginning part of him not caring? Well, I mean, when someone the, says the, the that his, it's my the historian, ball now. Yeah, the historian, <laughs> like Gildane, being like, well, you know, Aegon wasn't that bad, especially with the way... Yeah, I mean, it, it's an unreliable and meant to be unreliable history. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Well, the lab that appears through all of this, which Davos is waiting with bated breath to find out who it is, is not a Stark after all. He's 14 or 15. His eyes look older, with a tangle of dark hair and a sharp, feral face. He is mute, but has been learning his letters. Robat hands him a dagger and has him write the name for Davos. W-E-X. Wax. Wax was ironborn and was Theon Greyjoy's squire. He had been at Winterfell when Theon captured it. Davos tells them the most updated news he knew of Winterfell. Theon put the Stark boys to death mounted their heads above the castle walls. I love Wax being introduced as this mirror for Davos here. Uh, Wax and Davos both have that common thread of being able to learn their letters in advance when they have been significantly disabled in that aspect of life, right? Like Davos's fingers, for example, are one thing for him that sets him apart, but also his lowborn status. And Wax is lowborn and mute. Uh, 
they both have valuable info on the Starks or on Stannis in Davos's case. And I think there's even a really religious aspect happening here as well. Yeah. Wex and Davos, their survival is rooted in that kind of religious feeling, right? Like Wex survives in the end of Clash by climbing up a tree because of the old gods, right? It's a heart tree. And Davos survives in a clash of Cain. And he frames it as religious. He frames it as a a thank you to the mother for once. There's a specific comment, too, that gets made about Wex's being saved by the old gods and climbing the trees when Davos first gets to White Harbor. In Davos 2, he thinks, do the gods have some other task for me? If so, White Harbor may be some part of it. Every corner, Davos here is looking for a sign from a god, any god, the gods, his gods, their gods, whichever gods will pay attention. But this little boy, this 14, 15 year old guy crawled, scrambled down a tree. And uh, I kind of hope he goes with Davos. I don't know if he will, but maybe he'll actually go. Maybe he'll become like the Podrick to his Brienne, but opposite, I guess, because he wouldn't probably talk as much. I don't know. I think there, there's a lot happening there, and I think that redux of Wex being present for the people, hearing the people that were dead actually living, and now here's Davos, who his head has been cut off and displayed for everybody falsely as well, but Wex sees him dead and walking. What you said, the language when you called out just now, the scrambling down a tree, it reminded me of another character, right, who also waits out in a tree until the danger passes, except turns out he didn't wait long enough, slash, it still got him in the end. But Will! Uh, Will, uh, at the very, very beginning, yeah. the prologue of A Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shit didn't work out for for him, but... Mm-hmm. Well, I hope better no. for Wax. I really like Wax. Maybe because he slept in the heart tree, right, in the godswood. Maybe that made the difference. Yeah, he's safe. Davos had heard when Lord Bolton's bastard came down, Theon put the castle to sword, down to the last child, and that Ramsay had slain Theon himself. Robat interjects and is like, nope, Theon is alive. He's now a prisoner to be flayed by Ramsay when he pleases, and Wyman nods and explains, you were told lies, Davos. The bastard of Bolton is the one who put the castle to the sword, sparing the woman because he liked to rope them together and march them to the Dreadfort to hunt them for his sport. He rapes them, flays them, and feeds them to the dogs. Robat says the evil is in his blood. He's a snow, no matter what the boy king has let him be called. So I don't know if this means the Glovers or the Manderleys came across some of these women, but like, what kind of specific ask questions do you ask to get like these answers of yes or no from Wex <laughs> and figure all these kinds of details out? Like, holy shit. The bizarre, bizarre game of 21 questions. Pictionary. Before before I come back to Wex later on, uh, there's a fascinating set of lines here as they discuss how horrible that they think bastards are. Uh, especially, right, ones who are denoted by the surname Snow. Glover says, a snow, no matter what the boy king says. And then Wyman follows up with like, was ever snow so black? And I'm like, yes, there was. His name is Jon Snow, and he took the black at the beginning of this book series as well. And he's another person, right? Kind of like Davos or Rickon or Aegon, who was kind of squirreled away. You know, I think there's something more to that, too. I think it is a specific call out a la Jon Snow, because... When you have all of this set up for Aegon and this missing prince going on, it's a herring, right? Because John yes. was the missing prince the whole time that is alive, I- is a real Targ. He's sitting here. He's the real prince. 
Uh, it's a total placeholder for John. So I think this is a strong, seed is strong moment. Was ever a snow yes. so black? Well, John Snow, dark of hair, dark of cloak. There you go. It's very much in the same vein as like snow, Ned, snow. Yes, yes. Yes. And as you said, it's a herring, a kit herring. Ah, get out. You're fucking fired. I can't believe how fucking fired you are right now. I brought in, that that was a layered, that was a layered joke right there. Um, Long haul. Explain Rams. They explained Ramsey's horror show with Lady Donella Hornwood to Davos and that the Lannisters mean to reward the Boltons with Ned Stark's daughter and Glover says that Ramsey is a beast in human skin. Ah, that's interesting because Skagos, right? With Skagos being where we're headed to for Davos next, Ramsey being a beast in human skin, that's what all the rumors are about. Yep. And I mean that language again, talking about Jon Snow, because we are talking about wargs here with the Starks and all. Mm-hmm. Wyman says the phrase speak lies, and he says don't expect the North to believe the lies, but they do expect the North to pretend to believe the lies publicly or die. Roos and Ramsay- so rude. It is really rude. Roos and Ramsay lie about the Red Wedding and Winterfell's fall, and Wyman has had to bide his time and wait for Willis. And now, my lord, asked Davos, he'd hoped to hear Lord Wyman say, and now I shall declare for King Stannis. But instead, the fat man smiled an odd, twinkling smile and said, and now I have a wedding to attend. Roos means to see the old man get on his velvet knees, and so he shall go, but not without giving some wedding gifts to the phrase. On the day they depart, he says, palfreys to guide them through the north. Aw, what a nice guy! Yeah, he gave them some horses. What's on your registry? Make sure it gets to Wyman, everyone. Oh my god. Uh, some extra pie, some it. leftovers for the road, honey. He can afford it. I'm glad that he had like at least one set of good lamprey pies. <laughs> right. In this chapter. But yeah, he's very sure, as you said, that Davos like knows what he means. He's wink, like, wink. yeah, we're both... We're both into killing people. <laughs> no. Wyman um, <laughs> lurches to his feet and begins to discuss warships because those warships that you saw in the harbor, Davos, Manderly has been building a shit ton of them for over a year. That's not all he has. He has more hidden up the white knife. And he's also like, guess what? I also command heavier horse than any other lord north of the neck. And my walls are strong and my vaults are full of silver. Oh, that's a good call out there with the silver, uh, because the guards all had the silver tridents, as we said. Ah, I thought they were just fancy. Well, they are. <laughs> <laughs> They're also, you can do more than one thing. Wyman says he can deliver King Stannis the allegiance of the lands east of the White Knife, Widow's Watch, Ramsgate, Sheep's Head, and the headwaters of the Broken Branch. It says, if you can meet my price... And Davos is about to say something, and he's like, no, 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 not Stannis meeting my price. Just you, Davos, because it's not a king Wyman needs, but a smuggler. Ugh. Again, all that talk of prices and buying. But okay, and Davos, part of it is like, Davos just did a really, he did too good of a job at his job, right? They were like, wow, I'm so impressed that you made it all the way from that storm in the sea, and then to the sisters, and then to here, and then snuck into the city unnoticed. They're like, amazing, amazing, just the man for the job. Yeah, it's a bummer, though. It's a bummer to go to the next company and find out they think the exact same of you. Yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> Robat explains wax was valuable, but he doesn't know all of his letters and words, so they've been puzzling together the whole bastard of Bolton murdering thing for a bit. They realize Ramsay murdered Sir Roderick and the men of Winterfell, and Theon's men as well, all while they tried to yield. Wax escaped by climbing the weirwood, sleeping in the branches till he heard the voices of the dead. Six people. Two were Bran and Rickon and their wolves. Wex had drawn this with chalk. Wex followed after them when the group split up, specifically after the boy and woman had parted, and he knows where they went. So again, this is the most difficult combination game of Pictionary and 21 questions <laughs> that perhaps anyone has ever played in their life. Oh. And the stakes are much higher. <laughs> but... So I, there's something that's been standing out to me about Wex this whole time, and I couldn't put my finger on it until while we were recording, and I finally put it together. So a lot of people are going to talk about it, and rightfully so, and I do think it's significant that Wyman Manderley, when he does the Frey Pies, the Lamprey Pies at Winterfell, that it is a reference to Titus Andronicus, in which Titus Andronicus, of course, bakes the sons of his enemy slash the rapist of his daughter into the pie and serves it to uh, their mother. And his daughter is named Lavinia. And Lavinia, part of what happens to her, uh, along with being gruesomely, horribly raped, is that her attackers not only cut out her tongue so that they will n she will not be able to name them. Learning from a previous story, uh, they also cut off her hands so that she cannot write it. But she eventually does uh, find a crude way in to write and implicate them. And that's, I think, why Wex feels like he stands out and is so uncanny to me. It's because he plays into a sort of Lavinia-esque role oh. uh, from Titus Andronicus. And that he, though mute, is still able to help pinpoint uh, what the crimes of Roos and Ramsay truly are and then direct them to where Rickon is in, in this Manderly story that is laden with a lot of references to Titus Andronicus. It's, it's another element that ties those two stories together. That's well spotted. I didn't really think of him in that role. Obviously, he's much more artistically talented, but... Yes, but it's hard <laughs> when you don't have hands, you know? Wex has yes. hands. Yes. And I guess they underestimated the fact that, A, first of all, they didn't care about him and thought he was Zed B. Uh, he, he was illiterate. Yeah, he found a way for his worth to matter. Yes. You want the boy. Roose Bolton has Lord Eddard's daughter to thwart him. White Harbor must have Ned's son. And the direwolf. The wolf will prove the boy is who we say he is should the Dreadford attempt to deny him. That is my price, Lord Davos. Smuggle me back, my liege lord, and I will take Stannis Baratheon as my king. Glossing over the idea that Roos and Ramsay literally will murder people to keep what they have and to get what they want. Glossing over the idea that they probably won't just like look at Rickon and be like, okay, question mark. Glossing over that. <laughs> this is a great plan, Wyman. Really good plan. but uh, It's like an okay plan. Yeah, it's honestly not a great plan. Not like, I mean, like, great, you have a boy king that you can, you know, control, like a four or five year old king, but like, I just don't think it's like a, if you had a Rob or if you had a Bran, 
or if you have, you know, uh, I just think Rickon's probably the least effectual. I mean, God, even throw in one of the girls at this point. There's just a lot of faith. There's a lot riding on Davos' shoulders, and I would personally crumple under the pressure. But I guess he's been under more pressure before. Yeah. He reaches for his absent finger bones. He's also anxious. He knows he needs luck for whatever is about to be asked of him. He asks why Wyman needs a smuggler when he has ships and lords and maesters and knights, and Wyman's like, no, I need a real sailor. A real smuggler, not a riverman, not a fisherfolk, a man who has sailed to dark, dangerous places. And Davos is like, where is the boy? And Robet's like, Wax, show him. Wax throws his dagger and flings it into the map behind Wyman, grinning. So, coming back to Wex, because this is now a Wex podcast, not really. <laughs> I stand. I love this. I, I, He's interesting. I hope we get more of him. As you said, I hope, like, I don't know if, like, it, it's that he follows Davos or oh. not, but I do hope we get more. He's ill in pain. He's Davos' ill in pain. <gasps> oh my god, you're right. There you go. Oh, and it's great that he's, like, learning to read and write because that's part of what has kept ill in pain as again now that i'm in sad ill in pain hours why did you do this sorry um (laughs) he was so lonely yeah um anyway sorry i do love this small detail though about wex throwing the dagger because it's another way that his ironborn culture shows right because we know that they love fucking throwing sharp objects and are very good at it his suckling babe Wax, Wax. suckling babe. Wax, you have been busy. Well, well. For half a heartbeat, Davos considered asking Wyman Manderly to send him back to the wolf's den. To Sir Bartimus with his tails and Garth with his lethal ladies. In the den, even prisoners ate porridge in the morning. But there were other places in the world where men were known to break their fast on human flesh. Time to get hungry, Davos. Eat them before they eat you. Under the sea, the old fish eat the young. I know, I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. oh. What if that is about that? It could because be. Te- it, is beca- it could be because the under the sea is a metaphor for death, and now Davos is a dead man. Mmm. 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 I had to consider... Hmm. I'm interested. I am interested. I mean, I don't know. I just came up with this on the spot right now, so this could be... Well, it is the veil. Under the sea is the veil, as uh, previous people have expanded upon, so it could be. Hmm. Well, Hmm. cannibalism, infighting, and black magic lie ahead in the winds of winter, which we're going to chat about as we get toward our outro here of the episode, and of course, sacrifice... But uh-huh. all of these things, Davos is expecting to meet at Skagos, right? We learned a lot about Skagos in Reek 3 on Skagos. Well, only heart trees ever see half of what they do on Skagos. From what we've learned, though, it seems that they might be viewed a little unfairly, right? Just due to having a different culture than your average Westerosi, even as some of the Northerners have lifestyles. I think that the odds are George is going to build up the Skagosi for us like this, but how he actually writes them might be similar to how we see the Free Folk, right, as far as how they're coded. The Skagosi 
like to be called stone men. However, they're called savages in the world of ice and fire and by some in the universe. And it's admitted that they're the subject of many a dark rumor, like offering human sacrifice to their weirwoods, luring passing ships to destruction with false lights. Wait, wasn't that Borel? And feeding upon the flesh of men during winter. But you know where all this is happening right now, Eliana? Who's using a night lamp style tactic and Who's offering human sacrifices and feeding on the flesh of men? Stannis' camp. Mm. Oh, they are doing that. They're doing exactly that. So Davos is going pretty much to a place that is rumored to act like Stannis' soldier's camp. Interesting. That is that that is an interesting mirror. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, everything he's doing, right, is in service to his hungry god, his hungry god, not being R'hllor, but Stannis. Boy, does Stannis want to eat. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as as you said, we're probably going to see that Skagos is not what we expect. <laughs> and like you said, revealed to be different in the way that the... The free folk have been, and I'm looking forward to seeing that, especially if they serve to be a more, especially if they're shown to be like a much more peaceful like version, right, of mm-hmm. what's going on in Stannis's camp, where it turns out the Westerosi, right, are the ones, as you're saying, they're the ones who are truly acting like savages, and and the, I mean, I truly, I think I've said this before, believe that the Skagosi, um, the cannibalism that they practice is ritualistic in terms mm-hmm. of they eat the dead who die of natural causes or whatever around them and to become a part of them. And I think that fits in with this idea of what we see going on with skin changing and, and people becoming part of one another and things like that. So Great thought. Yeah, it does fit in here. It, it's it's a loving thing. I know that sounds weird to say, but like it is like the, that idea that, that your loved ones become part of you. Read his dark materials. <laughs> I mean, there are real world cultures, right, where people would practice that, but they had to stop because that's how prions get spread. Wait, his dark materials isn't real? Oh my god. I mean, maybe in another <sighs> universe, right? That's the whole point. I don't think we have time to unpack the damage you just did to me. No, I'm just kidding. It's not as much damage as a secret commonwealth has done. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we say goodbye to Davos... In a dance with dragons. We need to get right back excited because we have a lightning round for after Davos in a dance with dragons. This chapter leaves off in the middle of the book, leaving us going, what the fuck? What the fuck? Like, what? Is this what uh, Davos Fingers calls Davos after dark? (laughs) Is this our own Davos after dark? I think so. I think this is Davos Uh. after dark. And... This means that we've condensed the rest of the book, which is a reread, right, to some of the prominent moments affecting Davos's journey or affecting Into the Winds of Winter that we might care about. So for the rest of A Dance with Dragons, through what we know from the Winds of Winter so far, so if you're trying to avoid Winds of Winter spoilers, bail out now. As Chloe said, Asha Greyjoy becomes a captive of Stannis Baratheon. Though his camp has deteriorated while snow piles higher. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> no. Theon Greyjoy. Theon remembers his name and works with the washerwoman and able to save Jane. Later, he joins up with Stannis' camp. 
but will he survive or become a sacrifice? Daenerys Targaryen. Daenerys decides to embrace fire and blood in the tall grass outside of Ace Dothrak as a colossar surrounds her. Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion, Penny, and Jorah are sold, and Tyrion works their way into the Second Sons, where he meets Brown Ben Plum. He pledges his sword to get closer to Daenerys. Tyrion sways Ben to Daenerys' side once more while the battle rages in Slaver's Bay. Victorian Greyjoy. Victorian meets Makoro, who transforms his arm. Just as the siege of Meereen resumes, Victorian and the Iron Fleet arrive. Quentin Martell. Oh, you stupid sweet boy. Aw. Idiot. Ah, oh, truly. John Connington. John and Aegon make plans for taking Storm's End, and once taken, await Dornish Princess Arianne Martell and her swords. Arianne Martell. Arianne heads to meet the Griff family, stopping first at Ghost Hill before taking a ship to the Stormlands. Elaine Stone? A fabulous journey is to occur in the Vale with young, capable knights of all houses in attendance, including young Harry the heir. With such a prominent audience, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Mercy. Mercy murders a man named Raph she knew in another life. She must perform and soon change her identity once more. Oh, those mummers. <sighs> and that brings us over to... You know, this is exciting. Everyone, you should feel fucking blessed if you're here right now. Oh, you're about to get, like, we're about to witness greatness. This is something that we are all getting to see right now. And yeah, everyone should feel blessed. This is, I feel blessed. Uh, I, I'm going to give you guys, you all are going to get a special treat today for me. Uh, I don't know if it's that special. So thanks, Eliana, for gassing me up as always. You know, when my tank's on empty, I know you're always there ready to pour, but... <sighs> but this is special, okay? It, it feels it feels special. This is my Davos baby. This is uh, Davos and I are pregnant. No. Mm, you're suckling, sweet babe. Oh my god. Let's talk about the future of Davos in The Winds of Winter. Uh, I think a lot of Davos' story and Rickon's story and Shaggy Dog's story is overlooked. Uh, I think Davos' arc in the next book is going to be wild. And Skagos is kind of a wild place. So let's dive in. Because as we left off in the wolf's den with Wyman and Davos, Davos said, you want the boy. And Wyman says, yes, that is my price, Lord Davos. Smuggle me back to my liege lord, and I'll take Stannis as my king. But this conversation feels like we've had it before, right? And it brings me back to A Clash of Kings, Davos 2, when Davos and Stannis have a conversation. My liege, you must have the castle. I see that now, but surely there are other ways, cleaner ways. Let Sir Courtney keep the bastard boy, and he may well yield. I must have the boy, Davos, must. Melisandre has seen that in the flames as well. Davos's loyalties are pushed from treating for Stannis to making compromises and promises in Stannis' name. And now here he is, promised to deliver a missing Stark son. The son who, until now, was nowhere to be found whatsoever. 
But this isn't the first time that Davos has done something like this, right? Gone out on a limb, no pun intended, with the heart tree to save a boy. It reminds me a bit of when he saved Edric Storm. Not just the act of saving a boy, but even down to the environment, right? Rickon and Edric's stories begin in the ancestral seats of Winterfell and Storm's End, and both boys see their homes fall in a clash of kings. Shadows murder Courtney Penrose, Maester Lewin bleeds out by the godswood. The last breaths used to usher the Stark boys to safety. Losing the guardians that helped raise them, these boys fall into new guardianship. Edric ends up with King Stannis Baratheon until he is sent off into lease with Andrew Eastermont. And Rickon ends up with Osha the Wildling bearing Ned's sword from the tomb. They both move to their new homes of stone, right? Dragonstone and then Lease later, or the Stepstones, I should say, a different stone, and Skagos. Even their crews kind of have some resemblance, right? Kind of ragtag, you have Rickon, Osha, Shaggy Dog, the Skagosi, Unicorns, and then you have Shireen, Patchface, Edric, uh, off the beaten path, so to speak. Davos' arrival in Skagos is going to come at an important time. The Battle of Ice will probably have commenced by then, between Stannis and the North. Uh, by the time he gets to Skagos, he'll be cut off from the entire realm. With winter upon them, the armies are close to breaking in the North, so we'll see what happens there. But Davos is going to have some like adventurous couple of chapters. Uh-huh. It makes me think about the heart trees that saved Wex, specifically, and the heart trees are probably going to save Rickon. I'm wondering, and this might be a little out there, but if we're going to see something in the way of the shaggy dog story that everybody always says, right? A shaggy dog story of a long-winded tale working up to a surprise ending outside of reality or logic. And if this about Rickon is going to be that Davos gets to Skagos, he sails the Shivering Sea, he makes it through safely, gets all the way there, meets unicorns, meets Rickon Stark, meets Osha, and at the end of the day, realizes that Rickon Stark is in good hands here, right? He's in good hands in Natalie Tenna, I mean Osha's hands. Uh, returning Rickon to Westeros means that he becomes a blood sacrifice, like Edric was, like Shireen is probably being sacrificed as, as this happens in the story. Uh, returning Rickon means that Maybe Melisandre gets her hands on some king's blood, or maybe Wyman has political desires. Skagos's history is interesting here, because the Isle is known for rising up in rebellion against the Starks. This has happened as recently as Darren II's reign with Barth Blacksword's rebellion. But maybe leaving Rickon on Skagos isn't the worst thing, if it's actually safe, like we've discussed. Could Rickon's fostering help bind Skagos back to the north? Rickon Blackwolf, maybe? Uh, even the idea of Rickon riding his wolf into battle as some sort of monomythic warrior's tale in Skagos, it works, right, amidst all of the other possible endgames for the Stark children of King Beyond the Wall, Queen in the North, King of Westeros, the Stark King on Skagos. Skagos isn't just rich in having Rickon, though, right? Like, there are other reasons to go to Skagos. Davos might not come home empty-handed. He might actually come back with something that we might have discussed a little bit back in Davos 5, A Storm of Swords. 
Roro sailed past Skagos into the Shivering Sea, visiting a hundred little coves that had never seen a trading ship before. He brought steel, swords, axes, helms, good chainmail hauberks to trade for furs, ivory, amber, and obsidian. Uh, Skagos is very rich in obsidian. It is a source of it. Davos could leave Skagos without Rickon, vowing to come back and tell the Northerners, including Wyman, who, spoiler, already dead by the time he comes back, uh, he never found Rickon, but he did bring back Obsidian, which, as of A Feast for Crows 1, from Samwell, we know, literally, these plots pass in the night like ships, right, between A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. The Children of the Forest used to give the Night's Watch a hundred Obsidian daggers every year during the Age of Heroes. This is a great resolve after Sam stabs Small Paul, of course. So, maybe not empty-handed, right? He may leave Rickon to save his life, but the sad bonus is that if he saves Rickon's life by leaving him there and not bringing him back into the turmoil and chaos of war, the entire threat against Rickon's life passes, right? Wyman's dead. The Boltons will be gone at some point in the next book. Stannis, Shireen, Devin, and Co. will probably be dead by then as well. Melisandre might feel a little handsy still, but <sighs> it's a tough call. Maybe we'll get a, da- uh, a Dance of the Dragon style, right? Like we talked about. Maybe he'll come home, the Viserys and Aegon style reuniting. Yeah. And I mean, you have time to flesh that out. Like, you, you've, uh, this is something that I feel so special because it's something that Chloe has been building up for a while. And you just came across, you just thought of that Viserys thing today and pieced that together. So there's no fault in not having that fleshed out uh, in the what? 30 minutes since you first came up with it. Live. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Eliana. I appreciate your help. I mean, it's true, though. Like, you just <laughs> came up with that now. Um, so we have witnessed a lot of incredible, like, things just now in this episode. And, um, you know, I, I think what you're saying is true. There's a lot of things that have been culminating in, in Davos' storyline that leads us to this moment. And it also ties in with a lot of the other things that we've been seeing, right? You're, you've told us uh, and laid out how Davos has learned his lesson from Edric Storm and has a bit of those lessons on smuggling boys in and out of places and choosing not to once he sees the consequences. And I think he learns a lesson that Ariane didn't learn, that a lot of other people didn't learn, and realizes that, because you were saying, you know, all these kids are being brought to be sacrifices, even if not literal, figuratively, that to crown him is to kill him. And I think he would see that of Rickon as he sees what's happening and the toll that's happening on Stannis' life. Like, does he really think Manderly's not going to fucking try to crown this kid? Right. Um, or, like, do something, right? And... There's almost something tonally, too, when in that line between him and Wyman, where he he uh, gets it, you know, he goes, you want the boy, of course, of fucking course. Like, you know, he's just sitting there thinking of fucking course you want the boy. It always comes down to these men wanting the boy. It's yeah. kind of like an opposite mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all evil queen thing, right? Like we see that yeah. with Sansa and Cersei. Cersei's totally like, oh, Sansa's the fairest. No, but uh, Stannis with King's yeah. blood, for example, it's an obsession. And even in this chapter alone, we talked about that line of how uh, from Arya, Arya in A Dance with Dragons, when he says sorcery needs desire. Not only is it smoke and mirrors, but it's also desire. 
Absolutely. And and there's a desire, and you were saying this earlier, of Stannis is a hungry man, right? Mm-hmm. When we're talking about cannibalism, we're talking about how he's feeding on flesh, and we discussed earlier uh, the devouring of Shireen and innocence. And earlier on in one of Davos' chapters, Melisandre says and points out to Stannis, well, like, yeah, congrats, Joffrey's dead, but he has a younger brother, right? There's Tommen, and after Tommen, there's Marcella, and it, it brings back this idea of, like, Ilaria's speech of where does it end, you know? Like, over and over, where does it end? And if Davos brings Rickon back, where does it end? Yeah, and to this day, like, I mean, I I think that he'd probably remain monomythic, like, we never hear or see Rickon again in the text, which it's a clever way to move him off the page for George in a way. I'm not saying George would want to discard his character or lessen the playing field. And again, that, that idea of bringing him back, you know, from like the Viserys and Aegon idea, that that's really cute. I never really considered it because I really just considered this is probably the way that Rickon leaves the story. And we hear stories later on of, you know, the Stark King on Skagos and his giant black wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Or it could make sense because I know, um, does Westeros have elections, right? Like they seem to set up in the show or not. But if not, if Rickon does return to all of the series, that's one way for the line to continue. Yeah, that's true too. That's true too. Well, there's a lot to think about. And I, there's a part of me that. I don't know. Jeff says it was. I don't know if it was meant to be the last chapter in Dance or Not. It feels like the way that the language is at the end doesn't seem hmm. like it. In, in that we know that a bunch of like, what, 250 pages or something that were intended to be in dance, not that they were necessarily written yet, right. but that George had planned uh, to be in dance and to wrap up a couple of things were supposed to be in there. And I wonder if more was supposed to be in there or not, but... I'm sure he had other ideas, right? Like, there, there's so many options and so many opportunities that he has to think about for each character. We've talked a little bit about all the rewrites, right, as far as the Miranese not, and Quentin, how many times his chapters were rewritten and different angles. Yeah. So I'm sure there were countless possibilities George had for Davos, but I do think that he had to have made the decision at some point to say, no, we end yeah. it this way once more. Davos is in... The heir, we don't know if he's in danger or how it's going to be, and I'm sure this gives him ample opportunity also to speed forward in Davos's plot. When we open up Davos's first chapter in The Winds of Winter, I mean, we can almost guarantee that it's going to be a walk back of he had been there for a month, caged in the jail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm excited, you know. After doing this reread, it's now one of the plots that I'm most excited for. In wins. Yeah, if anything. What happens to Davos? Yeah, if anything. Also, is he going to go home to his wife? Absolutely. And as you said, it feels like that's starting to be built up, you know, talking about, you you pointed out that his sons, right? Now they're coming. They're there. And and I'm going to revise what I said towards the beginning of this reread. Like, I felt that Davos before, you know, when you do it quickly, doesn't seem to think of his children. Like, we think of him as... He has kids, but we don't always think of him as a father, but they are there, and he does think about them a lot, and it's something that he touches on and then kind of, and then grieves, but then he has to move on because he does have to keep living. He isn't really a dead man. Yeah. 
Well, <sighs> what a POV. I uh, Truly. I look forward to shaking it off and getting into Catelyn Stark with you, but I really enjoyed getting through Davos with you. So here's to another yeah. one. Here's to another one. Here's to however many fucking years we have left of this. Here is to the next 17 years. Uh, next 17 books. Here is to 23 the years. 29th book in this series. Absolutely. Well, you know us. You know where to find us. But if you don't, here is an easy path to get there. Social media, Girls Gone Canon on Twitter. C-A-N-O-N. If you want to send us a handful of thoughts about this last chapter or a chapter before this or a chapter after this, whatever you want to do, pictures of your pets, send them over, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And yes, so we are not going to be starting Catelyn until March because we are going to be covering a LaBelle Sauvage chapter next week. But if you want to be notified of when that chapter comes out, be sure to subscribe to us on one of the many platforms on which we are hosted, such as, for example, Podbean, where this does directly go up on, or Google Play, Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast. All of those. Yes, and more. Yes. And hey, Patreon is one of those. You do get a private Patreon feed when you subscribe to us. If you subscribe to us in the stranger tier and above, you can use that feed to get special patron-only episodes. Happens monthly. This month's will be on His Dark Materials. It will be on the novella Serpentine, but next month we'll return with a guest, may I add, for yes. some really exciting A Song of Ice and Fire oh my stuff. God. Yeah. I forgot. I see. What a wonderful surprise! Exactly. Well, I forgot you planned it for next month, so that's that's exciting. Actually, we got a lot. We got a lot of exciting things in store for all of you. I think you're gonna be happy. So head on over there, Patreon.com/slash/GirlsGoneCanon, and if you sign up for the Thunder tier or above, we can hang out all day long on Discord. And of course, on Discord, as Chloe said, up at the top, we do once a month have our brunches and happy hours. Where people get together, sometimes they present things, sometimes we play Jackbox now, and be sure to come check those out if you are on Patreon, Thunder Tier and above, $10 or above. As always, it has been a blast covering Davos and having your thoughts roll in and talking about it with Eliana every week. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts. Eliana. But who will we be now? Oh, oh, oh. Oh my god. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> we should do patch face of songs as like pop songs. Under the sea. I, oh, oh, oh. I guess Harmonies that was very like, hey now, yeah. hey now, oh, oh. This is what dreams are made of. Catalan, we should. Hey, hey. This is what dreams are made of. See you all soon. Killed at the twins. Oh my god. 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 Goodbye. Bye. Bye.